Hello and welcome to episode 88 of the Cost for Pointcast. I'm your host, Trevor Shackles. The 2021 season for the Senators has ended, and to recap a roller coaster season, I have with me a self-proclaimed occasional blogger, season ticket holder, and I would say, honestly, a Sens superfan, Kevin Lee. Kevin, how's it going? Not too bad. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I know you're just on with Alex Metzger recently, so hopefully you're not podcasted out. <laughs> Making the rounds. Making the rounds, exactly. Uh, and as you say, nothing better to do in Ontario. So I appreciate you coming on. And um, so, yeah, as I mentioned, today will be a season recap type episode. And I wanted to start by discussing the positives from this season. So in your mind, what are some of the biggest positives that Senators fans and the organization can take from 2021? So this really felt like a Jekyll and Hyde season, don't you think? Yeah. It's almost like a season of two halves. You had the first half and the second half. And I think you probably agree it completely lines up where the first half was very negative, whereas the second half was very positive. Definitely, yeah. And I mean, I have the numbers right here. Like I've I've been referencing this a lot on Twitter where their first 12, sorry, the first 15 games, they were 2-12-1. After that point, they were 21-16-4. and four. And like, you know, that's, that's a 92 point pace. Like that's a pretty, pretty solid, um, pretty solid season you have there for or half a season at least. Um, so yeah, I think it, it is pretty interesting to look at that Yekel and Hyde, like you say. Yeah. Are there any specific players from the team that you um, can look at as a positive development? I think your two biggest have to be uh, Norris and Zub, right? Like you had Norris. Sure, he had like the uh, rookie of the year in the AHL, but still, did anyone expect him to come into the season, take the first line role and run with it? And then Zub, you sign a guy from the KHL, you go, okay, maybe best case scenario, he'll be the sixth defenseman. No one's expecting him to become your best right-hand defenseman in probably recent memory. And mm. here he comes in and pretty much makes the second pairing look like the best it's been in years. Exactly, yeah. And I think with, with Norris, like you mentioned, you know, this is a guy that was playing against... Austin Matthews, um, Elias Pettersson, Sean Monaghan, Connor McDavid. Like, he was facing the other top centers in this division. And, you know, he had very so- solid defensive results as well. And, yeah, Zub, like, I I don't know. In my mind, I was kind of expecting him to be, like, Christian Yaros. I don't know if that was kind of your expectation as well. Oh, 100%. Like, when has Ottawa, I guess, ever signed one of these players who's in their mid-20s, never played an NHL game. Mm-hmm. They come in, there's kind of like that replacement level. Like, good enough to make the team, but nothing special. You go through them a dime a dozen, but Zub is looking like the opposite of that, which is kind of interesting that we get in the two-year, because obviously, if he outperforms it, he could be in for a big payday as a UFA. Yeah, and that's the thing. Um, I guess we can briefly talk about that as well. It's, it's, I mean, it's not ideal. I would have liked to see, you know, maybe three or four years with him. But at the same time, I mean, it's a cheap cap hit and they seem pretty, you know, confident that other guys like JBD and Thompson can maybe step up after that. I'm, you know, maybe skeptical of, of both of them panning out. But yeah, I, I think everyone, it's crazy just how quickly everyone loved Zub. And I think a lot of that was from that 5-1 comeback game where he scored his first goal against the Leafs. And I think like he'd only played a few games at that point. And I feel like ever since then, he's almost sort of had this, like, cult hero-like following. Yeah, how long until we see him in the shootout? I think that's what everyone's waiting for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. it's. I think we were robbed of that. But now, one guy I wanted to touch on as well was, of course, German superstar Tim Stutzler. 
what are your thoughts on him? Like, are you higher on him than you were earlier or like, you know, after the draft or, you know, are you kind of still on the same level in terms of his uh, future outlook? I think so far he's pretty much kind of met expectations. Like he's coming into the NHL as an 18 year old, super young, right? Like it's, it's hard in the NHL to come in as an 18 year old versus other sports leagues, especially just the wear and tear of an NHL season. And I think we saw that where he kind of tailed off in the middle there didn't produce as much, but I think what you saw as the season went on is he became more used to the NHL speed. He knew what he could do when he could carry the puck up, when he could get shots off, winning puck battles in the corners. And I think that just bolds well. Like his advanced stats weren't great, but mm-hmm. as an eighteen year old, you're not expecting that to come right away. And I think what we're gonna see is we're just gonna see this like linear improvement over the next couple of years. Yeah, and I think you know, you touched on the advanced stats as well. And like as someone who Obviously, if you're listening to this, you know that I'm very much into those things like expected goals and stuff like that. I think it's important to look at those things, but also note that, you know, he's a 19 year old and a guy like Jack Eichel actually had similarly quite poor uh, numbers in his first like season or two. And as you say as well, like, you know, this is a guy that he wasn't showing a lack of creativity. It's not like we were watching you know, rookie Curtis Lazar, who was just really struggling to produce any sort of offense. Like, this is a guy that was probably their most creative player out there. Um, and I think he was getting stronger as the season got along. So I'm not really worried about that at all. But um, I don't know. And Dorian kind of interestingly, or actually, I don't know if he mentioned it or if it was just implied, but um, they made it seem like Stutzla probably wouldn't be moving to center. What are your thoughts on that? I could see that. Like, the center is like the uh, defensive responsibility forward, right? And I don't think this season we got any sense that like Stutz was going to be this like superstar defensive two-way player, mm-hmm. right? Like he is, from what we saw, he's a very offensively gifted player. And I think giving him and putting him on the wing just gives him a lot more freedom to do that. That is true. Yeah, and I think you know maybe when Ottawa is like trying to contend, maybe you have him with the defensively responsible guy like Norris on that first line. So I think that could work. Um, not going to lie, I would be a bit disappointed, though, if he doesn't get that center spot just because they, they kind of lack that true elite number one guy. But who knows? Maybe maybe Norris can step up in that role. A couple other guys I wanted to get your thoughts on as well. Um, Shane Pinto just in his final 12 games and then also Victor Mete. What do you think of those two guys? So Shane Pinto is interesting. I think, uh, let me just pull it up here, how many points he had. Yeah, six points, I think, in uh, 12 games. Like, he didn't seem like a player that was putting up a lot of points, but half a game pace, mm-hmm. that's pretty solid for a uh, rookie that's just coming out of college. I think what we saw from Pinto is he does look like he's ready for the NHL. Now, I could agree with some I saw that think he should go to the NHL or the AHL next year, get a bit more time, like the top six, really develop that offensive game. I could see that, but he does look NHL ready. He didn't look out of place playing in the bottom six. And I think what we'll see is... A lot of I think that's what the biggest positive this year is. Like so far, every kid has looked like they belong in the NHL. It's true. It's true. I mean, that was to me like the 2021 season. The main goal was to get these guys integrated into the lineup. And Pinto isn't quite there, I would say. But um, like as you say, he might get some AHL time. But I think what bodes well for him is the fact that he is very defensively responsible, and he he you know, was fantastic on the penalty kill. So I feel like because of that, you know, he might actually stick with the team out of camp. Um, and yeah, like I think he could be perfect for that 
third line center role next season. Yep, and his faceoffs kind of yeah. gives you those Zen, get those Zen and Kanopka vibes. <laughs> With a lot more skill, but yes, <laughs> less less uh, face punching. Um, and I believe he only had. What. Well, I'm pretty sure he had 10 penalty minutes with the Senators, but I think he only took one or two penalties at North Dakota, which is just crazy. But um, so quite different than Kanopka in that sense. But yeah, and then also Victor Mete as well. Like I was quite impressed with him. Um, what are your thoughts on his short stint so far in Ottawa? I'm totally on board with you there. Like I think coming in, we had we thought Victor Mete was probably an NHL player, but given like what we heard out of Montreal, it seemed like we were expecting this inconsistent defenseman who would seem like the type of player that would bounce in and out of the lineup, kind of like Mike Riley last year, I guess. Yeah. But since coming to Ottawa, he was like just solid. Like he's probably the best uh, left-hand defenseman on third pairing we've seen in some time. And what surprised me most is he knows how to play with his size. He knows how to play like the gap with forwards and you would not tell that he's like a five foot six player. Right. And I think that's, that's kind of the key to, and maybe later on we can get more into Eric Brandstrom, but I think that'll be key for Brandstrom as well is, is using how to, or sorry, um, learning how to use his size properly. And I just love watching Mete skate. Like he's, he makes some of these plays in the offensive zone where he's not like going to put up a ton of points, but I don't know, just his edge work is fantastic. And I feel like, um, you know, just on the, on the point there, when he has the puck, he can make some fantastic moves. So, I am interested to see, though, if DJ Smith is actually going to be willing to have both Mete and Branstrom in the lineup on the left side. Because I I don't know. I'm quite skeptical of that actually happening. See, that's the biggest thing with DJ Smith. He has shown the willingness to learn. If you remember, like, the first OT, tossed all the vets out there, and we immediately lost that overtime game. <laughs> yeah. And after that, we never saw a vet in overtime again. I'm hoping this stretch at the end of the season gives him enough confidence to run with Branstrom and Mete in the bottom four. But I think the big question is, once if they hit a little bit of like a road bump next year where they struggle for a couple games, will they quickly revert back to the old ways of finding a big left-hand defenseman to put in there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, also, you know, if they have a big rivalry game against the Leafs or something and they had bad blood last game, are they going to put in, you know, whoever, whatever left, left shot guy they acquire in the offseason, right? So, yeah, I, you know, I, I will want to talk about Smith and Dorian specifically later on as well, because I think that's quite an interesting conversation. But yeah, I also wanted to ask you, like, keeping the positive theme here, do you have a favorite moment from the season, whether that be like a specific goal or a game or just like a little anecdote or something? I think the highlight of the season is probably the 5-1 comeback, even though that was probably during the first half of the season where it was a bit more negative. It was one of the like, minor bright spots i guess in a bad season mm-hmm. but i think overall i think what my favorite part of the season has to just be that run at the end where i think we went like nine one and two or something like that because it just i think that was the boost the fan base needed to go like this rebuild is on track yeah i would agree and i i had the same answer for you there with the favorite moment is the 5-1 comeback i mean i i think it's just crazy that that was the first time they'd ever come back from four goals in the senator's uh, history so, you know, seeing that live against an actual good team like the Leafs was pretty crazy. And and I have the exact schedule here. They That was sort of like the turning point for the season, I guess, if you want to call it that. Because up until that point, they had been 2-12-1. So that was the 16th game. Um, and then after that, of course, like I said earlier, they were 21-16-4. So, 
you know, maybe you could credit that as the, um, you know, sort of, sort of TSN turning point for the rest of the year. But I think also I should mention the, what was it from last week? I think the video of all the kids in, I don't know what neighborhood it was, but um, throwing the hats over at Tim Stutzel's backyard for his hat trick. I think that's just fantastic. Oh, I totally agree. I think next year is going to probably be very special when, because like a lot, like think about how many rookies we had in the lineup and they yeah. really didn't get like the true NHL experience, right? No fans, no, uh, I guess even exploring the city. So I think next year is going to be a very special year for all those, I guess, sophomores now. Yeah, well, and and obviously, like, I mean, I'm sure you're going to pretty much like almost every game or a lot a lot of games. As someone who lives in Vancouver, I don't have that opportunity. Um, but certainly, if 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 they're coming to Vancouver, I will want to see them, and um, you know, going to be very excited for people who can actually watch them play because it's going to be a lot of fun. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm quite excited for the first time for the season to start. I think so. I think like pretty much this was like the perfect finish to get the whole fan base hyped to start next year. Like there was a lot of excitement to start this season, but we all know how quickly that kind of faded <laughs> after a couple games. Exactly. Exactly. I, I mean, the first game was fantastic. And then after that, it was just, you know, <laughs> very quickly downhill, but yeah. So, I mean, lots of positives, but um, you know, didn't seem like there was a lot early on. And that sort of segues into my next topic, which is disappointments from this season. What are some of your biggest disappointments for the Senators this year? I guess the big one is probably the off-season signings in general. Yeah. Right. Like their big, their two biggest paws are probably uh, Austin Watson. He played phenomenal when the team was bad. Now it's unfortunate we didn't get to see how that would have fit in when the team was good. So he's going to be an interesting player to watch next year. And then uh, obviously Dadanov was probably the most hyped offseason signing you got this top six forward who excels in the power play and then obviously struggled on the power play in ottawa and didn't even put up that many points five on five however his underlying numbers were good but you pay a guy five million to put up points so he was probably one of the big disappointments and obviously all the vets that we brought in get branson <laughs> coburn <laughs> stepan yeah. none of them lived up to probably what management expected of them I think you probably agree on most of those points. Yeah, 100%. I agree on all that. Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> it's certainly disappointing to see how poorly all those guys played. And, I mean, Dadanov really gets to me, too, because I was so excited when I saw the Dadanov news. I mean, he was genuinely their, their biggest signing since um, probably Sergei Gonchar in, what was that, in 2010? No, 2011, whatever it was. Um, yeah, you were around there. Yeah, and, and like him and him and Kovalev were sort of on that same level, and you know I was expecting him to be, you know, sort of on that Clark MacArthur level or probably even better to be honest. And you mentioned his power play inefficiency. He had one power play assist. Didn't even have a goal. Like because in in previous seasons he had just lit it up. Now that was obviously with Barkov and Huberdeau, but you know you thought he was going to at least put up like a like a 50 point pace or something like that and yeah also i mean we also got to mention matt murray as well you know he's signed to that big contract he definitely was better before he got injured for the what second time i guess so there is some hope i will say there but yeah it is a bit bit disappointing that like pretty much hardly any of their off-season acquisitions besides i guess zub and, and then watson to a lesser extent were 
quite bad. Um, I don't know. Like, do, does that give you any confidence moving forward about their offseason this year? Yeah, I guess that's the big thing, right? Like, the thing with two is, like, Murray looked awful at the beginning of the year, but so did the entire team. Yeah. yeah. So it's hard It's hard to pinpoint how bad individual players were at the start of the year when the entire team was just terrible. Because, obviously, we got a small sample size of Murray in the second half before he got injured. And, obviously, you could look at those injuries as a negative, right? Like, is this going to be a recurring thing year to year? And I think it, like you said, I think it does really lead into the negative thoughts of this offseason, right? Like, I don't think we can say Dorian's had a particularly strong offseason yet. And now we're approaching that point where you have to build this team to be a playoff contender or at least compete for the wild card next year. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you you have to keep pushing forward. And that's what they're trying to do. At least that's that's what they're saying. So that is a good positive there. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned like that he hasn't had a good offseason, which is probably true. I mean, really, the only offseasons they were like actually you know, trying to get better would have been 16 and 17. And in 16, it was what? Like they traded Zabanajad for Broussard. I mean, I guess they added Condon in the fall. The next year, they really didn't do anything. I mean, they lost my thought. I don't know. I mean, you can interrupt if, if there was any other big moves that you can remember. I guess like getting Duchesne, but that was in the fall as well. So you're right. It seems like all of his off seasons, they've either been rebuilding or just kind of standing pat. Oh, for sure. And I think what's I think what's the most interesting thing, though, is when we talk about negatives, I don't think we can really name any negatives to end like the season, like after the trade deadline. For sure. Which yeah. is really which is really interesting, I find. Right. Because usually there's always something you can nitpick on at the end of the season. But it feels like for the first time in a long time, every sect of the Sens fan base, because you have like the analytical, the eye test, the mm-hmm. ones who fully believe in management, even got like the negative ones who doubt the plan. But I feel like this is the first time kind of every part of the Sens fan base is on the same page and going, I think we're going in the right direction. It's true. It's true. Yeah. And again, this is this is something I want to talk about later. But yeah, it it, it wasn't as if those last games were sort of like a Hamburglar run or like a bit of a mirage or whatever. Like they were, those games were being run by guys who are going to be around for a long time. It wasn't be because of like Derek Stepan or like, um, you know, Brayden Coburn, whoever, like these veterans that aren't going to be around. So that was, that was pretty nice to see um, that it wasn't just, yeah, Mirage down the stretch. Now, one player I do want to talk about too, that might be a bit nitpicky. And that I'm just curious about your thoughts on what you think of Eric Branstrom's season and, and moving forward. So Eric Branstrom's an interesting one, because I think the problem is he was a return from Mark Stone. Like right. right off the bat, he's put in an impossible situation, and management hyped them up. A lot of the like the scouts hyped them up as this incredible talent, right? So you have high, sky high expectations. Of course, the size has always been considered an issue, and I think this year you maybe would have hoped for a bit more of an offensive impact, especially on the power play. But I think what was great was seeing him improve over the season. But I think the fan base is gonna really hope he takes that next step next year, where we really start to see his offensive game take shape in the NHL. Yeah, and I think you you can expect some of those, I guess, warts in his game, especially like in his first season or two, much more than, you know, like a winger like Drake, Drake Batherson, right? Like it's going to be a lot harder to come into the league as a smaller defenseman. So I think like next season, if he doesn't take that step, then I'll kind of be, okay, I'm not 
that high on this guy. I still think he can be like a solid second pairing guy. Um, but yeah, as you say, like you'd like to see more and like, I don't know about you, but just seeing some of the highlights from him in Belleville, he seems like a completely different player. So I'd love to see that guy who is, you know, running a power play. And, and he did do that sometimes this season. So it's not as if he was completely um, without lacking, like lacking confidence, but I'd like to see that, you know, every single shift when he's out there. I think that's especially where the excitement comes, right? Like you mentioned Belleville. And I think this year, granted, I think it was only like five or six games, but he put up over a point per game pace. Yeah. And, he re- and like you saw the highlights from Belleville, he just looks phenomenal down there. And the thing is, he's still only 21. So I think that's, it's fair to say that despite him not standing out yet, I think it's fair to say we can still all be very high on him and hope he just figures it out shortly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one last thing on him too. He is the one guy you know, like a lot of the time, the conversation around uh, our old pal Cody Cece was, oh, we don't want to give up on him too early because, you know, he's got this potential and stuff. I don't think that was really true with him because he had, you know, played a long time and it was sort of clear who he was. I think that does sort of apply with Brandstrom, though, just because he he really does have that skill and he does seem like a different player at points and someone who has quite a high ceiling. So I wouldn't want to give up on on him too soon. Although it will be interesting to see like, you know, what's going to happen when Jake Sanderson gets here and, um, you know, if there's going to be room for him. But that's never a bad problem to have. Exactly. And whether Victor Mete is only 22, so right, maybe exactly. he has room for improvement as well, right? Like the internal competition is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, again, never a bad thing. You can never have too many good defensemen. Um, now, because... Matt Murray and, and Marcus Hogberg were both ineffective and also hurt. We had Joey Decord, Anton Forsberg, and Philip Gustafson all played games this season. Where do you stand with these goalies in terms of who should be trusted the most moving forward? And then also, like, who do you protect in the expansion draft? So, as we all know, goalies are voodoo, right? Good one year, bad yes. next year, especially at the young age. It's like, look at Kevin Mandelis or Mandelisi. He was, uh, looked like he wasn't even going to get a contract from the Senators, and he just goes off in his mm-hmm. final year in junior, and it pretty much forced the Sens to sign him. Like, I don't think he was at all in their plans originally. And then he starts the year in Belleville, and then you have Mad Sogard come up and totally <laughs> steal the starter's job. Like, Ottawa just has a glut of goalies. Now, when it comes to the goalies we have, I think what you notice, as you said, is Murray and Hogberg struggle out of the gate, and as we know, Hogberg's no longer with the team. Forsberg kind of took his place. I find that interesting. I didn't disagree with the Forsberg extension, especially since you still have some unknowns in the next year. Maybe you still need a third goalie for next year. Maybe not. Hmm. But at 900K for one year, it gives them the flexibility to move him pretty easily, I think. Uh, but I think for which goalie I'd protect, so as we all know, it's pretty much between Gustafson and the Cord. I think the Cord's your safer choice. I think he's got the higher chance of probably panning out, but Gustafson probably gives you the higher ceiling. As we saw this year, his stats were phenomenal. But the thing is, I think the fan base needs to be wary about his play this year. Very small sample size, and he did not show that like type of high skill level in the AHL. So I think we have to be wary of that, right? 100%. Yeah. I mean, as you say, like goalies are voodoo. It's just, I mean, it's quite interesting to look at how there's almost like no correlation year to year between a goalie's performance one year and, and the next like so 
I mean, even the, you have a, a goalie prospect like Levy Marilainen, who was drafted uh, last year. You know, he was fantastic in Finland. So maybe he is going to be the guy a few years down the road. But I totally agree that I think Decord probably has the higher chance of like being that NHLer. Like maybe he's a long-term backup or something. But yeah, I mean, it's hard not to look at Gustafson's stats. I think he had a 933 save percentage in, in nine games this year. And, you know, it's hard not to get excited about that, even though it's such a small sample. But he looked fantastic, and he looked so much different than he did in Belleville. Like, he hasn't really looked that great at all down there. Um, but I think it is interesting to note, though, that Gustafson is two years younger than Decord. And so, like, two years ago, um, Decord would have been finishing his senior year at uh, University of Arizona. So, or sorry, Arizona, Arizona State. And... uh yeah, I feel like if Gustafson was in that same spot and hadn't played in the AHL this entire time, we'd probably be having a, conversa- a different conversation. So, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, do you think there's any chance at all they actually protect Murray instead? If they protect Murray, I think that would be the <laughs> first step to having some uh, questioning of management. So yes. personally, I think I'd probably protect Gustafson. Like you said, he's two years younger. He has the higher ceiling. And when it comes to players, I find I love the cord, but his ceiling doesn't seem as high as Gustafson's. And when it comes to protection, I find you got to kind of gamble, especially for a budget team like Ottawa. You need to gamble on the guys that can hit a higher ceiling. So I would probably protect Gustafson, I think. 100%, yeah. And I I don't know. Like I, I genuinely don't know who Ottawa values higher because on the one hand, you know, Ottawa targeted Gustafson in the Broussard trade. But on the other hand, it seems like just more stories in the media have been like positive about Decord. And like, um, there was that, what was that? He like was kind of choking up after his first win, I believe. And I don't know, it just seemed like there was a lot of positive um, talk about Decord. So like, who knows, maybe, maybe they kind of just value his character more or something. I don't know. But yeah, I think Seattle would be smart to, take a goalie that can be like a third goalie that can pass through waivers and both of those goalies can. So that's my only worry that Ottawa might actually lose one of them. Yeah. I think the one thing I wonder is I don't pay much attention to prospect pools and like the other teams. (laughs) I do wonder if there's other teams that have a goalie that could get picked as well. That could pass through waivers, right? Like Ottawa, like the Mm. problem is we all pay attention to our prospects the most. Right. And we pretty much like, accepted the fact that Seattle is probably going to take one of those goalies, but I think there's probably still a good chance that Seattle takes neither. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the funny thing is that like most teams have a guy like Decord. <laughs> I mean, he could be a great goalie, but like, it's not as if he is like a blue chip prospect that, you know, Seattle couldn't possibly pass up. So you're right. Who knows? There, There's definitely better, starters like established starters i mean there's like anton hudobin probably aiden hill jake allen um probably like pavel francus so like there's there's plenty of goalies but yeah i think it'll be it'll be pretty interesting like i don't even know well actually now that we're on the topic is there anyone out of the forwards on those those last kind of few final spots who would you protect so I think the two that I'd protect, and I think a lot of people probably don't agree with me, but I would protect the prospects. So Logan Brown and Abramov, right? Because like I said, 
I think as a budget team, you need to take those gambles on high ceiling players, which both Logan Brown and Abramov are, right? Especially since they could give you some very talented offensive depth and they protect you in case some other forward prospects start to falter, right? Mm-hmm. How many times have we seen sophomore slumps? So I would definitely use like two of those bottom spots on them, even though a lot of people probably disagree with that. I don't know what your thoughts are. I would definitely protect Abramov. I don't know about Brown. I'm really souring on him lately. I feel like they're going to move on from him one way or another. Um, so in your scenario, would you have Dadanov exposed or protected? See, I could go either way on that. I think in my scenario, there's still probably one spot open. So I'd probably protect Dadanov at this point just because he gives you that insulation for the youth still. Yeah. Right? Like if some guys are struggling in the top six, you can just slide him up there and he'll be completely comfortable there. At the same time, if I chose not to protect them, I don't think I'd really lose sleep if a Seattle ended up taking him. Right, right. And, and I think, I don't know, like if, if he was exposed, I feel like that'd be an easy pick for Seattle just because, I don't know, he seems like a an easy sleeper pick that can just bounce back. And, you know, even if you put up like 45 points, like I'd be, I'd be pretty happy with that next year. So I would certainly protect him, but I honestly wouldn't be that surprised if they exposed him just because of the money. But it's an interesting conversation. And like, we'll, what is it, in two months, I guess the draft is. So I'm sure there's going to be like an endless amount of blogs and podcasts about it. So um, people can have their debates. Now, we touched on Pierre Dioran earlier on. And I want to talk about him in combination with DJ Smith. How confident do you feel in their abilities moving forward in the rebuild? So I'll start with DJ Smith. I think he's a really interesting case because as we know, like, even though he started the vets to start the season, how many NHL coaches would you say would not have done that? Right. Right. Like it's a known thing among NHL coaches. They'll always lean on the veteran like players to start a season. Right. I think what really impressed me with DJ Smith is he has shown a willingness to scratch veteran players. Like we saw it last year with Bodker this year with Anisimov. He even started scratching good Branson down the stretch, right? Like, like he clearly realized when a player is past their prime, right? Which gives me a lot of hope relative to past sense coaches. Like Guy Boucher would just keep running out a lot of the veteran forwards on his fourth line, despite them not producing. Mm-hmm. And he's shown to that once a player shows they can be trusted, like Branstrom and Mete, even though I guess he was kind of forced into playing them, <laughs> he still started leaning on them a bit more and giving them, bigger situation on the ice right like i think the biggest pause he had to dj smith is he has shown a willingness to change now the question is whether that willingness to change reverts to the old thinking when the going gets tough right but he has the team playing good hockey and i do think there is a very good chance he could be the coach for the team going forward yeah and i i definitely agree with your point about you know he showed that willingness to adapt and i think the first like month or the first three weeks of the season, people were pretty upset with him, like myself included, like I was pretty low on him. Um, But you know, he did do a better job down the stretch. But as you say, I don't know how much of that is just a case of his toys being taken away with like, you know, Paquette and uh, Coburn and Goodbranson and Stepan, like all these guys getting moved, or if it's him actually trusting these guys. So I think it's a combination of both, to be honest. But like, I've always been of the mindset that there are no actual 
good coaches out there. Like no matter who we have, no matter who uh, any team has, it's going to be hard to be happy with every single move that they make. So by the end of the season, you know, he was had a pretty ideal lineup, I would say. So I don't know if he is going to be a, a coach that can lead this team to a Stanley Cup or anything, but I think he could make them a playoff team. And I think on the Silver 7 Sens grades, I think I gave him a B or B minus. Like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of people kind of have him in that range. Um, I don't know if you're the same there. I think I gave him an A minus. Okay. I was very impressed, like just with how well the team was playing at the end. But Fair enough, like yeah. you said, the big the big question is whether that was forced on him with the like toys taking away, right? So like obviously that grade is very subject to change next year based on I guess how the roster makeup is and how he decides to play it. Yeah, well I think next year is that real test, right? Like when you have actual expectations and you're you know, maybe not expected to make the playoffs, but like you're expected to at least challenge for a spot and like you know maybe be in the mix by the trade deadline or something like that so um yeah i guess we can let, let's get to um dorian as well what are you yeah like how do you feel about him moving forward do you think he's the right gm for this this team so i think i probably echo what most sense fans think in that he's probably not going to be the gm that pushes them over the top he's done He's done it. He's done the job he was hired to do, right? Mm-hmm. Draft well, build up the prospect pool, and that's exactly what's happened now. We got a very deep prospect pool with most of them, most of them graduating to the NHL now. But he has yet to really show that pro scouting ability, right? Like mm-hmm. every off, every veteran signing just seems to be bad. At least this year, he kind of managed to like wiggle himself out of that, right? He got rid of Paquette, managed to bring Zingle in, which was a huge improvement in terms of that swap. He, uh, I guess, the pan got injured, so it didn't force his hand on that one. <laughs> but he did move Good Branson Coburn at the trade deadline, so it's really tough to tell. And I think this off season is going to be the big one. Like, did he learn anything from this year? Right, and that's always been the big criticism for me is that his his pro scouting and just the organization organization in general has been pretty poor on that side. Because like you look at the guys that they've brought in over the years in terms of. Uh, of trades or free agents it's pretty weak like even a guy like Duchesne who um you know was a, a big trade um acquisition you know he, he did decently well enough but he didn't really make the team that much better over Kyle Turris and yeah it's it'll be kind of fascinating to see which guys he targets because as he said in his press conference a few days ago you know he's going to be looking at different guys like not just character guys but guys who can actually had some you know value to the team he didn't word it like that but essentially was getting at the fact that he might be getting some better players this time around and i sure hope so like i think this team with a couple more pieces like they could be quite a solid team but yeah i don't know i mean both of these guys only have one year left on their contract so i mean do you think they're gonna get extended early in the season late in the season or i don't know what what are your predictions for that I think it's got to be late in the season, right? Like, I think now we're entering that period of Melnick's so-called uh, years of success or whatever he called it. Yep. <laughs> right? And I think the expectation next year is by the end of the season, they have to be either in a playoff spot or within striking distance of that final playoff spot, right? Like, I think anything else would be considered a failure. And I think that would probably likely cost both of them their jobs. Yeah. And I mean, I sure hope so, to be honest. Like, 
if, yeah, if they're not taking that step forward, I think, to be honest, that would be more of an indictment of Dorian, if anything. Um, but yeah, it, it is interesting to think about how, because I remember the news that he got extended, I guess, would that have been in 2018 or 2019? I forget, one of them. Um, and it was just crazy because it was, the, the timing of it was like, really, you're extending this guy for three years? And, you know, people were pretty down on him at that point. And yeah, like, I think Dorian has his strengths. I think he'd still be like a perfect sort of, uh, you know, director of pro scout, or sorry, director of amateur scouting, like, like man is right now, or, you know, an assistant GM or something like that. But I think, and I'm sure you would agree with this. I think he would benefit so much from having another, you know, assistant GM or a president of hockey operations, just something that can help him out in terms of, you know, negotiating trades and looking at free agents and things like that. A hundred percent agree. Like, it just feels like we're at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to staffing at the management level, right? Like you hear about all these other teams making all sorts of like president hire, director of hockey. And here Ottawa has Pierre Dorian and <laughs> I think it's McTavish under him. Yeah, like yeah. a two man team essentially. And a couple of scouts here and there. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty thin. What's interesting about McTavish is that apparently he was the one that was scouting Artem Zub and he was like kind of the guy that got him to come over. So I don't even know how much credit we can give Dorian for the Zub signing, more of a McTavish one. But um, yeah, anyway, it'll be, I, I just hope that Melnick doesn't make a decision too early, right? Like if he re-signs them in, let's say they they start out four and one and then he re-signs both of them. Like I, I just hope he waits till later in the year to actually see some positive changes. But yeah, now, now something that we also talked about earlier and yeah, it's just the the mood of the fan base about how that has changed. And to be fair, like when I say fan base, I mainly mean Twitter. So we're in a bit of a bubble there, but still. <laughs> and and early on, it was doomsday. No games were any fun. Although that was sort of more of the same from, from previous years. How would you characterize the fan base and their feelings right now? You know, this might sound crazy, but I think the fan base might even be more excited than they were during the 2017 run like <laughs> during the 2017 run there was a lot of excitement but i think in the back of everyone's minds i think people went this run is just in like aberration right like mm -hmm. the team underlying isn't this good they're not like one of the best teams in the nhl just everything seems to be going right and you're getting like these superhuman performances from guys like carlson right where now i think the fan base really seems energized like i don't think we've seen the fan base across the board as positive as they are now like you probably noticed that on twitter as well 100 percent, yeah it's it's very energizing i gotta say like just seeing i mean even just something as simple as seeing how many blogs and podcasts that are out there i mean like there's probably like a dozen different podcasts that I've seen pop up over the past six months. And it's crazy. It's, I mean, it's great. It, people are, are interested and especially, you know, the last couple of months and yeah, it's just great to see that. I don't know. And, and I'm sure you agree with this, that this fan base is way more passionate than it gets credit for. A hundred percent. Like I'm a season ticket holder. So last, uh, Pre, prior to COVID, right, during that mm -hmm. awful season, 
those crowds were sparse. I think you were looking at even lows of close to like almost nearing 10,000, right? Like <laughs> there were just gaps and gaps of like open space. Like there was perfect social distancing going on at Sens games. <laughs> and uh, you could just tell there was no atmosphere in the building. Like it was just dead, right? And like it didn't do the fan base justice to what this fan base is like, right? Like the fan base was just down. Nobody wanted to give Melnick money. But I think what we're going to see is once COVID's over and the fans can be back in the building, I'm super curious to see what the atmosphere in the building is going to be like with like all these kids and them playing exciting hockey. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, I am certainly still like a Melnick out guy and everything, but you know, I'm not going to not watch or not follow the team just because I don't like the owner. Like, winning is going to cure a lot of things, and if they're winning, like people are going to be excited, people are going to want to come to the rink. It's going to be great. Like. I think a lot of things still need to change, but it's just, I don't know. And, and also, like, just in terms of our online presence, I feel like we have one of the, you know, funniest and most entertaining and, like, smartest fan bases on Twitter. It just seems like, I mean, just the sheer amount of people who have analytics websites and people who are just, you know, posting these fantastic jokes on Twitter and stuff like that, it's... I don't know. I always feel very grateful that I'm a part of this like community. It, it just feels very special. I completely agree with that. Like since Twitter is just something special, like whenever there's like a charity involved or yes. somebody needs help. Right. We saw that with like Derek and Brian, like the yes, whole yeah. sense outside of sense Twitter as well, but that whole community just comes together to get behind those type of situations. Right. And I think that's really what makes it special. Right. Like, I know the term family is often overused, but it really feels like the Sens Twitter is like a very tight knit group. And whenever somebody needs help, like that whole community will get around them. Right. And like, I don't like you see that from other fan base, but it really feels like with Ottawa, it's just a very tight knit group with everybody. Right. Like there's nobody that's like kind of outside of it. Right. Like it's very welcoming. For sure. Yeah. And I almost feel like if it was, you know, New York or, or Toronto or something, it would probably be too big, right? Like it'd have a different sort of feel to it, I guess. So yeah, honestly, like I think, I think the fan base is excited and rightfully so. Like it's, it's, uh, you know, when you have all these guys coming up at the same time, it's, it's a lot of fun to watch. So um, yeah, just for this last section here, kind of similar question, but you're obviously someone who invests a lot of time and money into the team do you feel confident that this rebuild is different and that things are looking up or are you hoping to see just a bit more on and off the ice before you sort of fully buy into this movement? So I think the biggest concern is the team played fantastic down the stretch. All the rookies looked phenomenal. The youth looked phenomenal. The thing is there was no pressure in these games, right? Like, and every, as everybody mm -hmm. knows, how many times in the past seasons have you seen where the team unloaded every other trade deadline and the Sens actually looked half decent from the trade deadline onwards with, all those like replacement level players that just were trying to prove themselves. Right. And as you kind of brought up, not every prospect works out, but it seems right now, it seems like right now in Ottawa, <laughs> almost every prospect is working out minus like Logan Brown is pretty much like the only one that yeah. hasn't so far. So like, is that actually going to be a thing? Are we going to get so lucky that like 80 to 90% of the prospects that we expected to make the NHL actually make it like that would be crazy to me. Like, I think realistically you have to expect a couple of these young guys to take a step back next year and hit some walls, but maybe they don't. So I think really next year is going to be what really pushes, I think the whole fan base in a certain direction of how confident we are. Right. Like I can personally say, I think this is probably the most confident I've been in the rebuild. 
now that we're seeing it kind of like bear fruit with the rookies actually being in the NHL and performing. But the big question is, is this going to be a linear growth or not? Yeah, it's it's certainly fantastic look, to look back in October and say like, how many picks did they have originally? Like 13 or something. Um, you know, it's great to look at those those prospects and those assets and think, oh man, this team would be great. But until they actually get on the ice and, and play some games, it's, it's a lot different. So yeah, I would say I'm probably the most confident I've been probably since like, I don't know, like, I don't know if it's crazy to say since like, you know, their Stanley Cup run because kind of in those years between, they were always like, you know, in the maybe like, I guess one year they finished fifth in the East. But besides that, they were like a seven or eight seed or maybe like just outside the playoffs, kind of in that middle range. So they they were never like so terrible that they had to tear everything down and get these high picks. But now they have and yeah, it's uh, it's exciting. But yeah, I guess for, for people who are sort of wondering and about Melnick and whether, whether or not to buy in, do you think anything's changed there? Or like, I don't know, what's your thought process in terms of if anything's going to be different or, yeah. Well, I think one of the biggest things that just watching the team down the stretch, so I think this is the first time I've kind of enjoyed watching the lineup, even more so than like the 2017 run, top to bottom. Like mm-hmm. when the fourth, like usually when the fourth line comes out, I'm dreading watching whatever past their prime vets were throwing out there. <laughs> but at the end of the season, you got like guys like Formentin out there and how fun is it to watch him even in limited minutes, just pretty yeah. much get under people's skins, get those shorthand breakaways. And then even on the third pairing, now we got Mete who looks phenomenal to watch. Like this is the first time I can confidently say I enjoy watching like the fourth line and the third pairing. And that just makes fun hockey to be able to watch the, from the top down, like all lineups that you enjoy to watch. And I think that kind of leads into what you said is winning cures all, right? Like if the team performs top to bottom, I think you'll see that Melnick out sentiment kind of just go to the background because who doesn't like to watch a winning team, right? And I think Mm -hmm. you'll see that reflect once COVID is over and ticket sales. Like I'm very confident the team plays like they did down the stretch that you'll see close to full buildings again in Canada. I sure hope so. And I, I would think so as well. I think, People are going to be starving for, for, I mean, just sports in general, but Senators specifically um, for sure there. So, yeah, I think I don't fully trust Smelnik yet, but <laughs> as you say, like if, if the team's going to be fun to watch, I'll certainly be watching it. Um, okay, so last question for you, Kevin. Do the 21-22 Senators make the playoffs and why or why not? I'm going to be on the optimistic side as I usually am and say they will. <laughs> like, like I was mentioning before, how like it seemed like 80-90% of our prospects have made it to the NHL. I'm going to go against the grain and say that almost none of them are going to regress and they'll all improve from this season. And we just see a team that comes like firing out of the gate. Now, of course, this is all contingent on Dorian not messing with the current lineup too much and mm-hmm. forcing, forcing some guys to have to go to the NHL because there's no spots for them. And I think that's going to be the biggest thing, right? Like, It's almost like this offseason... I can see a lot of situations where I'd rather Mel or Dorian just do nothing. Just keep the lineup as it is and run that in the next year versus potentially signing some players that are going to underperform and just block the young guys from playing in the lineup. Yeah. I mean, so many of these guys who they could potentially bring in would just be a net negative overall. Like 
you know, you look to kind of like step on. Like, was that really worth giving up a second round pick for, you know, 17 games of him or whatever it was? Yeah, but you know what? I actually think they, I put down yes here. I don't know if I fully believe that, but I don't know. I'm kind of buying into some of the magic here. I think they could sneak into that wild card spot, like maybe like the, um, well, there's no real eighth seed in the East, but like sort of like the eighth best team in the Eastern Conference if, if they have that alignment again. Yeah, I think, you know, maybe even a guy like Sanderson gets added in March and then, you know, plays in the playoffs. I think that would be quite exciting. And, you know, and then you're thinking, okay, maybe they can, you know, win a round or something, uh, depending on who they play. Yeah, for sure. And I think we saw, like, even in the Canadian division later in the year, they they held their own against the teams like Toronto and Winnipeg, right? Like, they never, there were some games, they, a couple games down the stretch where they kind of got outplayed. But for a young team, they were able to hold their own against like all these first lines of like Matthews, Wheeler, Shifley, like all these top line players who've been like NHL veterans, right? And they didn't look out of place. And I think that's where you can kind of get the most positive. They weren't just beating the bad teams; they were competing with the good teams. Literally, just take out their zero and nine record against Edmonton, <laughs> and then like seriously, that's so much of their bad record. They'd have they'd be above five hundred if, if if they didn't play Edmonton. So luckily, we won't have to see them that much next year. <laughs> exactly there you go <laughs> all right well before we sign off here is there anything you'd like to plug uh, just my twitter you can follow me at bring back lee always uh welcome to have more followers and have more twitter discussions there you go yeah definitely follow kevin on twitter at bring back lee that sounds good um yeah thanks so much for coming on kevin i uh, really appreciate it uh, thanks a lot for having me it was great to discuss this season and i think this is probably just the perfect time to get the podcasts and like you said 12 <laughs> podcasts how many blogs with the sense becoming good there's gonna be so many fans looking to just consume this content 100 percent, yeah people hopefully have a bit more time on their hands to listen to these podcasts so yeah li- honestly there's so many good ones out there you know I recommend listening to as many as you can so yeah that'll do it for today as we wrap it up reminder that you can find the cost per point cast on itunes spotify iHeartRadio, and stitcher And if you really enjoy it, you can rate and review the podcast on those platforms as well. You can follow me on Twitter at ShaqTS, read my articles at Silver7 Sends, and also follow my YouTube channel called The Hockey Shack. If you want to submit a listener question for an upcoming episode, send me a message at CPPointCast on Twitter where you'll get any updates about the show. Thanks for listening. Adios.